So tonight is a great privilege for all of us. It's gratifying to see so many who are wise to be here because tonight will be memorable. It was for me, as Ari shared, when we did this CBI CSP trip to Israel in October, we met with many remarkable people. But meeting with Rabbi Hanan Schlesinger, Abi Alu Awad, in their respective homes, their respective communities, and hearing about their shared mission of dialogue. At the end of the evening, I'm saying this out loud so I don't forget, I want to read a quote from Tom Friedman's editorial in today's New York Times that relates to tonight. But just another paragraph of my words and then to turn it over to them. Tonight is a night of taboo for too many. Taboo in terms of Israeli Jews not speaking to Palestinians, seeing Palestinians as dangerous and untrustworthy. A taboo of Palestinians speaking to Israelis, seeing them as dangerous and untrustworthy. And in those two respective communities, two different narratives exist, and each side hearing the other has not been an active listening. Ali Abu Awad, Hanan Schlesinger are leaders in the art of dialogue, in building a future together despite different narratives and learning not to fear each other. Our two guests, visionaries, two men who indeed live with courage, Abba, Ab, Ali Abu Awad, Rabbi Hanan Schlesinger. Good evening, everyone. Thank you, really, thank you for having us. Ali and I are neighbors. I mean geographically. We live in very close proximity to each other, 20-minute walk. But we should never, ever, ever have met each other. It wasn't in the cards. It was really something uh, that was impossible. And for me, our meeting and our friendship and our partnership has been an impossible, miraculous, and life-changing event, my life. And that meeting and that partnership has at this point, I think, changed tens, hundreds, perhaps thousands of other lives. My story, Ali will tell his story, my story is really all dependent on, on him and what he's, he's done to me. And the minute I tell you about this is going to be a story of transformation, there's going to be a lot of roller coaster ups and downs as I tell you what I've been going through for the past year and a half since meeting Ali. Uh, you may think at the beginning of my story one thing, hold your judgment because you'll hear other things, different things in the middle and comparing the end to the middle, you'll also hear different things. So withhold, withhold judgment. This is a roller coaster. I would like to introduce myself with four terms. I'm of course a Jew and I'm a rabbi, I'm a Zionist, and I'm a settler. 
When I say I'm a Jew, just about everyone in this room knows what that means. I want to take one minute to deepen, perhaps, for me, what it means to be a Jew. Obviously, Judaism is not just a faith community, not just a religion. We're a family, an extended family, a family become a clan, where a clan become a people, and a people become a nation. Jewish identity is not just individual identity, of course. Jewish identity is collective identity. We're all part of that chain of tradition, that chain of being. That chain begins with Abraham, with Avram Avinu. That's part of who I am. Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov are in my blood. They're in my genes. I was born over 3,000 years ago with all of you here. We were at Mount Sinai together, and we're going through Jewish history. We're going through world Jewish history together. And there's no one in this room who's going to die today or tomorrow, another 5, 15, 20, 30 years. No one's going to die because as a collective, members of the Jewish people, we're all here forever, as long as there'll be human beings and Jews upon the planet. And it's not just as all of us historically are part of one being, and we're all together in the Kishkes, it's not just vertically, it's also horizontally. All the Jews alive at one point, at this point in Jewish history, were part of one nation, one people. We talk about this people, the Jewish people, horizontally and vertically. We always have to remember that the Jewish people was born on a certain piece of real estate. And that piece of real estate has always been crucial, central to our identity. And that piece of real estate, of course, is Eretz Yisrael, is the land of Israel. And throughout Jewish history, it's been part of who we are to this very day. So that's what I mean when I say that I'm a Jew. When I say that I'm a rabbi, that's much easier. I'm deeply connected to and I've always been teaching the texts of our people. When I say that I'm a Zionist, what I mean is that I'm one of those people, one of those Jews who feels deeply that the time has come in Jewish history in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, the time has come for the Jewish people to consummate or to reconsummate our age-old connection to our historical land. The time to reimagine and re-experience the deep connection between the Jewish people and the Jewish land is right now. And when I say that I'm a settler, well, geographically, a settler, of course, is someone Actually, there was a map there. I don't know if uh, anyone is able to put it up now. No? Okay, so you have to look at my map, which you can't see. Uh, I said, of course, as someone who lives in the West Bank, also called occupied territory, also called liberated territory, also called Palestine, Palestinian territories, and also called greater Israel. Those are all words that refer to the same sliver of land, right? The West Bank, Jude and Samaria is here, above Jerusalem and below Jerusalem. A settler lives in Jude and Samaria, but that's not my definition of a settler. A settler is someone, a Zionist, who feels that if we're back in our ancient homeland, then I want to be at the center of it of all. I want to be in the part of our homeland where the Jewish people began, where the Jewish people flourished, and that's always been the administrative and leadership center of the Jewish people. Because you know, Tel Aviv and Haifa and Ashdod, Nahariya, 
on the coast. They're all part of the land of Israel. But for most of Jewish history, Jews didn't live there. Where did Jews live during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Where did they live during the time of Joshua? Where did they live primarily the time of David and Solomon? Where did we live throughout the Second Temple period? It was primarily not on the coast. It was what is today called the West Bank is where the Jewish people were born and flourished throughout our history. And if we're back today in the land of Israel, I want to be, I want to be where it all began. That's my definition of a settler. So let me begin the story. You know, you open up the book of Genesis, one of the primary, most powerful events in the book of Genesis is the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, the binding of Yitzchak. Abraham and Isaac, the family, they were in Beersheba, and they were commanded by God to go on a three-day journey to the mountain that God will show Abraham, and there he is to put his son up on the altar and sacrifice him to God. And Abraham walked with Isaac for three days from Beersheba to Jerusalem, to Mount Moriah. And if they walked for three days from Beersheba to Jerusalem, then Abraham and Isaac walked through the place that's now my backyard on the way to the Akedah. I live in a Shvut, a town, a settlement, a yeshuv, in the area of Gush Etzion, which is part of Yehuda, part of Judah. It's a six or seven hour walk from my home going north to Jerusalem. On the morning of the third day, as Abraham is walking with Isaac, he walked through where today is a Shvut. For me, as a religious observant Jew who lives the pages of the Bible, for my wife, for my children, for my family, for my students, for actually all of the people who live in a lone shoot in Gush Etzion and all the 22 settlements of Gush Etzion where it's primarily observant religious people, to live where Abraham and Isaac walked on the way to the Akedah is really, really powerful. And it's not just the Akedah. All of Abraham's life, Abraham's life was spent walking the north-south axis, the central mountain range, going from Nabulus, Shechem in the north, down through Beit El, what today is Jerusalem, through Bethlehem, down to my backyard, and then down to Hebron. That's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived throughout the book of Genesis, and that is where the settlers live today. That's where, that's where I live. In the time of Joshua, after Slavery in Egypt for 210 years, 40 years in the desert, making their way, the 12 tribes in the land of Israel. Where did they settle when they came in? In what's called today Judah and Samaria, in the West Bank. It took hundreds of years for Jews to extend to the north and to the south. They stayed around Jerusalem, Samaria, and, and Judah. There were 12 tribes, you know. Judah was one of the tribes. Why is Judah today called Judah, the whole area south of Jerusalem? Because that's the tribal inheritance of Judah. And Judah was the leadership tribe. That's where King David came from. That's where Solomon came from. That was always, that area was the administrative and leadership center of the Jewish people. If I'm back in the land of Israel today, I want to be at the center of everything. I want to be where it began, and I want to be where it continued on. You know that cultures, peoples, they live in a land, they're exiled, they're destroyed, they leave behind artifacts, they leave behind wells, they leave behind houses, they leave behind walls, they leave behind jugs and pottery. But there's one artifact that only Jewish culture leaves behind. And that's the mikveh, the ritual bath. 
that we build for ourselves in order to purify ourselves before worshiping in the holy temple in Jerusalem. Do you know that where I live, there are five, six ancient mikvaot, ritual baths, going back far more than 2,000 years ago. I can walk five minutes from my house and go into this ritual bath, stairs down into the area where the rainwater collects, stairs coming up, you go down and purify yourself. You come up purified, and then it's only a six or seven hour walk to the holy temple that used to be there in Jerusalem. I can just imagine the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of pilgrims, pilgrims coming to the temple from North Africa, from Egypt, streaming from the south, from the Negev to Jerusalem and walking through my backyard, purifying themselves in the mikveh on the way to the holy temple that used to stand in Jerusalem. For someone living in Gush Etzion today, in Judah today, those memories, those thoughts are really, really powerful. And these ancient mikvaot, not all of them, but some of them are on a dirt trail that we today call Derech Avot, the way of the patriarchs. Now, what is this dirt trail? It's a north-south road going from Beersheba in the south up to Jerusalem, and even going further than that, has been found on this road an ancient Roman milestone saying such and such miles left to Jerusalem. So this was the ancient road from 2,000 years ago. And if it was the ancient road from 2,000 years ago, then most probably it was the ancient Canaanite road from 3,000 years ago because roads didn't change that, long, that often so many years ago. So this road is the road that Abraham took for the Akedah, for the binding of Yitzhak. It's the road that the pilgrims took streaming to the temple for thousands of years, and it's in the mikvaot, the ritual baths that are on this road, that pilgrims for hundreds of years purified themselves on the way to the holy temple in Jerusalem. To live there as a Jew today in the reconstituted Jewish settlement of the land of Israel is really, really powerful. The book of Zechariah, Zechariah, thus said the Lord of hosts, there shall yet be old men and women in the squares of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age. And the squares of the city shall be crowded with boys and girls playing in the squares. Thus said the Lord of hosts, though it will seem impossible to the remnant of this people in those days, shall it also be impossible to me, declares the Lord of hosts. So we hear this amazing prophecy spoken in about the year 520 before the common era. And it's amazing. It's impossible. You can't believe that God could do this. What is God going to do? What's the amazing miracle? That there'll be Jewish life, little boys and little girls, old men, old women in the streets of Jerusalem. But what's so impossible about that? I mean, we know that there's Jewish life in Sydney. There's Jewish life in L.A. There's Jewish life in New York, in London. Why is it an impossible miracle for there to be Jewish life, according to this prophecy, in the city of Jerusalem in the squares and the streets of the holy city. Well, if we remember the historical context, then we know full well why the prophet says you would think it's impossible for there ever to be Jewish life in the squares and the streets of Jerusalem. Because when this was spoken, the city was empty. The city had been destroyed by the Babylonians 70 years before. There was nothing left. There was only jagged stones with jackal, jackals darting in and out. Nothing left in the city. Not only nothing left in the city, 
But many thought in those days, there's nothing left of the Jewish people to go back to the holy city. We'd been in Babylon exile for those 70 years, and we're assimilating. The old people look at the young generation. They're not going to Hebrew school. They're not going to synagogue. They're learning Babylonian. They're dancing in Babylonian discotheques. Who's going to go back? And what are they going to go back to? But the prophet says, you think it's impossible for Jewish life to ever be reconstituted in Jerusalem? I can do it, says the Lord. And after those 70 years of exile, the impossible came true. 42,000 Jews, as described in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah at the end of the Bible, 42,000 Jews after 70 long years of exile came back. And it was like a miracle. And then I say to myself, if it was a miracle 2,500 years ago, when after an exile of 70 years, 42,000 Jews came back, then what do I say in our generation? When we've been in exile from the land of Israel, not for 70 years, and not for 1,000 years, and not for 1,500, we've been in exile for 2,000 years. If coming back after a 70-year exile was a miracle, what do I say about coming back after an exile of 2,000 long, hard years? And it wasn't just 42,000 that came back in our day. There are today over 5 million, many over 5 million Jews in the land of Israel. From my perspective, from the perspective of this Jew, rabbi, Zionist settler, What I'm experiencing is far beyond any miracle that any Jew has ever experienced in the annals of Jewish history. And I'm right where it's, where it's happening, right where it's happening. That's really powerful. I was once told, <coughs> excuse me. I was once told, go to the UN Plaza in Suffern, New York. Look at all those flags flying in the perimeter of the plaza. The flag of Russia, the flag of the US, the flag of China. You know, the Chinese flag represents a culture that's been continuously growing and organically developing in its own land for 3,000 years. The flag of America, a new nation, not more than 200 years old. And then you look at the blue and white flag of the state of Israel. It represents a phenomena that has no parallel in human history. Here's the flag of a nation that lives in the same land that it began in over 3,000 years ago. But we've been out of our land longer than we've been in it. We're back in the same place after 2,000 years of exile. After all those years with the same culture, the same language, the same book of books, the same religion. That's unbelievable. That's really unbelievable. And there's one more thing I want to say before I end this first part of my talk. The book of Ezekiel, spoken in the context of that Babylonian exile after the destruction of the first temple 2,500 years ago, the book of Ezekiel has God saying to the prophet, you think you're dry bones? I can make dry bones come alive. 
The Jewish people in Babylon and exile, after those 70 years I talked about earlier, they saw themselves as all washed up. There's no hope for ever coming back. As a collective nation, the Jewish people are all dried up. And then God shows the prophet, you think that you're like dry bones as a people? Well, look in your dreams, vision, says God to the prophet. What do you see? And the prophet says, I see a graveyard. And God says, can those bones come alive? And the prophet says, only you know God. And then the prophet sees in his mind eye, his mind's eye, that the graves are opened and the bones arise and flesh to flesh and bone to bone and sinew to sinew. And then a whole army is walking on the face of the earth where there used to be a graveyard. And God says to the prophet, those bones are the whole house of Israel. The whole house of Israel will come alive. That was a metaphor. But in our day, the Jewish people were really dry bones. In 1941 and 42 and 43 and 44 and 45, we were literally dry bones. And we were cakes of soap. And we were ashes. And we were smoke coming out of the crematoria of Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen. And had you asked me back then, 70 years ago, can those dry bones live? Can cakes of soap reconstitute themselves into a living nation? Can smoke become bodies of pioneers who are going to make the desert bloom and create a Jewish nation? Of course I would have said no. And now today, those dry bones are in this room. All of you and me. The dry bones have come alive. And there's over six million dry bones alive and vital in the state of Israel today. The Jewish people lives again. That is who I am. That's the Jew and the rabbi and the Zionist and the settler. I tried to explain to you why I live where I live and what the meaning of my life is. And that was the full, complete, powerful meaning of my life until a year and a half ago. And a year and a half ago, when I met Ali, everything changed. And I believe today that the strength and the power and the righteousness of the narrative I just told you that I believe in with every fiber of my being, I believe that the power and the strength of that narrative blinded me for all the 57 years of my life, until a year ago, blinded me to another truth, to another people, to another national entity that I just didn't see. And I can't explain how it could be that for 34 years I lived in Gush Etzion where 95 of the people around me are Arabs and Palestinians and I didn't see they existed. I just didn't notice them. They were invisible to me because the truth I had was so all-encompassing. Somehow, I can't explain it, prevented me from seeing the reality around me. And it's not just me that just missed all that reality around me. I believe today that the Zionist pioneers in 1880 and 1890 and the turn of the century in 1910 and 1920, 1930, they came back to the land to recreate the Jewish commonwealth and in their eyes the land was empty. But it wasn't. The land was not empty. There were people there before us, but we didn't see. 
They were invisible to us because of our Zionist narrative, because of the truth of our past, because of our deep connection to the land of Israel, because of our need to create a homeland for the wretched masses of Eastern Europe. We didn't see that the fulfillment of our vision was about to cause a tragedy to another nation. And in 1948, when we declared our state, for me, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, and we didn't see that the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, which I really believe it was, that that fulfillment of biblical prophecy caused a Nakba, caused a tragedy, caused a catastrophe to another people. We didn't see. And in 1967, Six-Day War, we reconquered Judah and Samaria, the West Bank. We came back to the biblical heartland, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Within a few months after the war, Gush Etzion was resettled. The settlement I live in alone for it was established. We came back to the biblical homeland, and we didn't notice that in coming back to the home of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, over a million Palestinians came under our control. We just didn't see, we didn't feel, we didn't know or experience what that was going to do to them and what that was going to do to us. And now I just want to take some minutes to explain how I began to see things that I never saw before. You're looking at a, uh, a convert in a certain sense. I've I've seen something beginning January of 2014 that I didn't see before. I got an email from a pastor, a Protestant pastor in Western Virginia. And he said that he had heard that I'd like to meet Palestinians, which I'd never done. It was true. I was looking to build bridges and make connections and open my eyes. I didn't know to what. And he said that he comes to the Holy Land once or twice a year. He's been doing this for two or three years. Meets Palestinians, meets Israelis, and introduces them to each other. <sighs> and he came to my house, as we had set by email, talked to me, heard my story that you just heard, and he said he wants to introduce me to someone. I said, fine. He told me next Thursday at 4 p.m., go to this certain place, and I went. 4 p.m. came the next week. I walked out my front door. I had a 20-minute walk through the vineyards and Palestinian fields that surround my settlement. 20-minute walk, no more. I opened the door and I told my wife where I was going, and of course she said, don't go, it's dangerous. And I went anyway. And my heart was pounding as I walked through the fields. And 20 minutes later, I got to Ali's family's farmland out there in the fields, and I saw something that was unprecedented. I saw about 20 or 25 Israelis settlers and 20 or 25 Palestinians in the same place together, talking to each other. That doesn't happen where we live. And they were eating and schmoozing. It was a kumzitz. There was food on the fire. It was kosher, by the way. And I walked up to this woman who was wearing brown from head to toe. I can only see her face. I don't know where I got the audacity just to talk to her. I remember that one of the first things one of us said, and don't remember if it was I said to her, she said to me, I can't believe I'm talking to you. And the response was, I can't believe I'm talking to you. But we kept talking. And then she called over her husband. Uh, his name is Jamal. He's a friend of mine to this very day. And Jamal tells me where they live in Beit Umar, very close to Alon Shvut. 
and he takes out his cell phone to show me on Google Maps where they live. I couldn't believe for a split second that Palestinians have cell phones, have smartphones. And he gets onto Google Maps. At that point, I didn't know what Google Maps were, and he showed me. And he showed me on the map where he lives in Beit Umar. It turns out that Jamal and Hanan have been neighbors for 30 years just with a fence dividing them. Now, I remember long time ago that when the winds were blowing in the right direction, we can hear Palestinians talking in their homes on the other side of the fence. But we had no inkling of who they are. We knew that they were evil, that they throw stones at us, and worse. I remember back in those days we had infants in the home, and it happened sometimes that parents get angry at their kids. When my wife would curse the kids, you know what she would say? She would say, go to Beit Umar. Translation into English, go to hell. And now I was meeting someone from hell. And he didn't have a tail, and he wasn't a devil. And he talked and looked like a human being. And it was really, really disconcerting to meet Jamal from Beit Umar. And Jamal called over his son, who was there, who was 17 years old. His name is Yazen, and he's wearing a windbreaker. And the windbreaker says in English, seeds of peace. It's a camp in Maine that brings Palestinian Israeli kids together for the summer to get to know each other. And I see this Palestinian kid from hell wearing a windbreaker that has the word peace on it. On it. How could that be? Palestinians know, don't know the word peace. And the kid starts talking to me about his, his experiences in this camp of peace and about his hopes for the future of peace between Israelis and Palestinians. I was blown away. I was really confused. What's going on here? What's happening to me? And then Jamal says to me, out of the blue, he says, Hanan, when my kids see someone with a kippah like yours, this big kippah, they start to cry, he said. And I said, Jamal, what's wrong with my kippah? Why do kids start to cry when they see the kippah? And he said, well, you know, people with a big kippah like yours, they have long beards. Okay. And the people with long beards, they carry submachine guns and they shoot at our kids and kill them, he said to me. And for a split second, I had no idea what he was talking about. And two seconds later, something went off in my mind. I realized how Jamal's kids look at me. Because I know, I knew, that it's very often happens that we want to go on a tool, we want to go on a hike to feel the land of Israel under our feet. We take our students and our family and our wives and our children and our guns for protection. We walk through the fields. And how does that look to Jamal's little kids that there's these foreign-looking people from the other side of the moon with these kippot and long beards, and they're all carrying submachine guns and walking through our vineyards. I suddenly understand how I must look to him. And then time went on. We talked for two hours, different people milling around. And then we had a little kumzitz around the fire. The sun was going down. And Ali spoke, and a Jewish person spoke, each person presenting themselves to the group of about 25 people who were left. And for the first time in my life, I heard a Palestinian speak, give a talk, talking about what it's like to grow up in Beit Umar, what it's like to grow up as a Palestinian under occupation. I never heard the word occupation before, or I read it, but it didn't mean anything to me. But suddenly Ali is telling me, without using my name, that he lives under my occupation. I never thought of it in those terms before. 
And he talked about the lack of rights. And he talked about the suffering. And he talked about the lack of freedom of movement. He talked about the lack of access to water and health care. And it was so, so offensive to hear him speak. And it was so, so challenging. And it was disturbing. But I couldn't put my finger on anything false that he said. He was taking the building blocks of history that I know, beginning of the 20th century, 1948, 1967, Intifada. And he was taking these building blocks of history and putting them together in a narrative, reading a, reading, excuse me, weaving a narrative so strange and so offensive to mine, so contradictory to mine, but I didn't hear anything that sounded false. I walked out of that experience, that kumzits, that get-together, really, really confused. And I went home, and the next few weeks I started reading these websites that a good religious orthodox rabbi like me should never be caught reading. All these leftist websites describing the, the oppression of the occupation. And I would read a line and then stop and turn away and read another line, and I had this strange feeling that it's not all false. Because the truth is, I've seen it my whole life, but I didn't see it. It didn't enter into my mind. It didn't have the cognitive building blocks to absorb it because it just didn't fit into my narrative. But suddenly, I had met a few days before someone who's from the other side of the world, on the other side of the fence, just a few kilometers away, and there's a human face there, and he told, and he told us about these experiences, and I'm reading it on these, these leftist websites of B'Tselem and Bamakom, and I don't know if you've ever heard of them, and uh, the New Israel Fund, and I start churning inside. Perhaps some of this stuff is true. And I go back to Ali, weeks pass, months pass, I read websites, I go back to Ali, I start hearing what he's doing, I talk to other Israelis who have become friends with his, and there were times that my stomach was falling out, I had to pick it up from the floor, my worldview was discombobulated. I was profoundly challenged. And I kept learning and growing and thinking and hearing and listening. And that's the story of what I've been going through for the past year and a half. I live in two worlds now. I'm a Jewish, Zionist, rabbi, settler. And I'm living biblical prophecy, and I believe that with every strand and, and thread in my body. And at the same time, I've learned to see a different perspective, the Palestinian perspective. And I'm juggling these two perspectives inside of my mind and my heart. And I've come to the place, and by the way, this place fits in very well with the uh, Talmudic, Hasidic ideology I've been teaching my students for 30 years, that there can be multiple truths. But for me, those multiple truths until a year and a half ago were always reform and conservative and orthodox. They can all be true at the same time. And there can be different ways of being a Jew and pluralism. And suddenly my pluralism began to include Palestinians, Muslims, Arabs. And I live in a world of partial truths. And we're here tonight to take you on this journey of opening up your hearts to include partial truth. Never, never, never repudiating your own Zionist, religious, Jewish truth, but also finding room in our hearts to include another perspective. Thank you. Good evening.
first of all, thank you for having us. And um, I'm sure for me and for Hanan, it's a huge opportunity to talk to you. Um, you know, one of the things that we suffer from, that people take sides, whether they are pro-Israel or pro-Palestine or pro-nothing. And they create conflict in their own community between Muslim and Jewish, where we sometimes have to come and solve these conflicts because we want solution. We want people to be pro-solution. And being pro-solution sometimes is so hard because what Hanan is facing today, in my opinion, is, is a conflict with himself instead of conflicting with others. Peace comes sometimes when we conflict with ourselves, when we argue with ourselves, which is hard because we always live and grow up with one truth, which is our truth. But the other side truth for us is fearful, is painful. We don't, we don't like it. We don't want to see it even because there is a price of it. And the minute that the price of peace will be cheaper than the price of war, I think we will achieve peace, we will have peace. But we still stuck of accepting the price of war than, you know, uh, than accepting the price of peace. And both of them are painful, by the way. The price of peace and the price of war. But at least the price of peace will not cause us our life or others. The price of peace can cause us materials and giving up ideas, but will not lose anyone like I did. So I grow up, uh, and I grow up believing absolutely on the, on the opposite of what I just told you. I grow up, I was born to a refugee family from 1948. When Israel was established as a state for the Jewish nation, for the Jewish people, my, my family, my nation has lost their rights, has lost, the, has lost their house, has lost their happiness, has lost their rights and belonging, and has lost their normal life that they used to live. And I become a refugee. I was born as a refugee. I was born with that label, which consider you as a stranger in your homeland, which is very, very hard. And even your own people, your own nation, will consider you as a stranger because you are a refugee. And I was born to a very political family. When my mother joined BLO on the 17th, she became a Fatah leader. And she was very close to Yasser Arafat himself. And she led events against the Israeli occupation. And I grew up in a very political home. I remember our house has become like an office for BLO. All of these actions, all of these forbidden actions and forbidden, you know, ideologies of resistance has caused us a high price 
to pay every single day by the Israeli security forces or by the Israeli army. So my mother was arrested for several times. And when the first intifada started, the first Palestinian uprising in 1987 has started, it didn't take me a minute to, to participate. Because, because as a young child, as a young teenager, was like the first chance to throw out this anger and to find a place to deal with it. Then I throw tons of stones on the Israeli soldiers, as many other Palestinians did. And I was arrested in 1990 with my mother. Uh, and I, I was to prison for four years, and she was to prison for five years. And going to, to prison carrying this identity of, of a hero, fighting for freedom and justice has, has created so much credibility for me in my community. But going to prison also as a political prisoner was like going to the best university that you can imagine. Because Palestinian political prisoners have succeeded to create five committees to lead and manage their daily life by themselves. So there was education committee, management, national security and negotiation committee. And I start learning and being part of that system which educate me just to be a best person with the most moral environment that you can imagine. So it's not the criminal environment when you hear about prisoners or prisons. It was the best environment that these prisoners has created with a high level education system to educate the, their self. I have learned languages, English, Hebrew. Hebrew has become like my mother language. And I have learned many things. We used to sit twice a day in a circle to discuss interior and international issues. You know, the leadership of the Palestinian community was in prison. These are the best people who used to lead the nation, the Palestinian nation. So, so this system has helped me to, to serve and to stand all of these years in the prison. And after three years, of being to prison, I wanted to visit my mother in her other prison. And as usual, Israel has refused. Even, even though the Israeli law give us the right to do this every three months. So it took us three years and a hunger strike for 17 days, me and her, to achieve that. And for me, struggling and starving for 17 days to see my mother has strengthened me to, to hold it and to, to stand in this battle between me and, and myself. I felt that I'm I was dying every day. But the moral cause of my approach 
has strengthened me. And the moral action by having non-violence, by having a hunger strike, has strengthened me. And I was sure that I'm, 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 I'm going to win. I was sure about that, which has happened after 17 days. Then we visited each other. And for me, that was the first time, really, that I, I achieved something. I said it right, right? Because he fixed my language. <laughs> I said it wrong before. And this event has changed all of my view to the conflict. I didn't become Mandela. I didn't become Gandhi or Martin Luther King. But my political mind has, has, has been convinced that, that there is alternative of, of, of physical action. There is alternative of violence. There is another way to achieve rights, effective way, by empowering the human being inside us. But to do this, you have to be a big believer of yourself before your cause. And this has changed many things inside me where I was released one year after with my mother and our mission was to transform the Palestinian nation from a place of revolution against the occupier to become citizens of a hopeful state by the Oslo Peace Agreement between both sides. And our mission as leadership, as leaders of our community, is to build the whole Palestinian constitutions for the Palestinian Authority. And we deeply supported the peace process. As even as a Fatah activist, we supported the peace process. But we were challenged. And this is something for me, I explain it to you because I really want you to understand what happened. Because today when, when, when politicians say there is no partner, I want you to understand why they are saying that. Because they are not partners. So, so our mission was challenged by the continuation of the military Israeli occupation on the ground. So we couldn't, we couldn't really create credibility to fight our extremists. Because violence still consider as a freedom fight. If we want to consider violence as an illegal action, we should give the nation their rights at least to move freely. We couldn't do that as an authority, as a Palestinian authority. The other thing is the, the, the credibility of fighting was based in legitimacy for, for, for the action. What I mean is Political parties who still believe in violence, who educate people to be violence, could have credibility for that by the Israeli military action against the Palestinian every day. So we have lost, I was an officer for the Palestinian security forces. We have lost our, even, even our respect by the Palestinian community.
because we couldn't prove. In one hand, we were really arresting people who participated in violence action against Israel. I did that myself. But on the other hand, we couldn't give the nation any alternative of violence to achieve their goal or to live freely. The other thing is continuation of political investments in our conflict by outsiders, by politicians, by political parties, by countries, by, by movements. Because we know very well that there is many outside parties are not willing to see peace in the Holy Land. They are not willing to see that. So they keep investing initiatives, uh, money, whatever ideology, whatever you, you can imagine, for us to keep conflicting. Third, the corruption of part of the Palestinian Authority, at least, that has raised also despair and anger among this authority. And lack of achievement of this authority to, uh, for the Palestinian rights. Fourth, the peace agreement has become piece of paper and not more. There was no engagement of the two nations in any reconciliation process. Why? Because reconciliation needs values. Our politicians were not courageous enough to have these values. You cannot create reconciliation under occupation, like example. You cannot create reconciliation, real reconciliation, while you are supporting violence and you, you lead um, a sata. Uh, incitement? Incitement, yeah. I wish that I can speak in Hebrew with you. It's much easier. <laughs> so, so you cannot read, le really create a realistic, effective reconciliation process without normal values of life where people can heal the crime by considering the pain as something in the past. Because you cannot continue living the crime and reconcile. You cannot do that, you are a human being. So the whole, the whole peace process has collapsed in 2000 and I was badly wounded by, by, by a settler. There was a car passing me and the guy inside the car was shooting. I didn't see his face, but I saw an Israeli car, then I assume he's a settler because there is some extremist settlers who lead these events against Palestinians. It happens a lot. So I was sent to Saudi Arabia for medical treatment where I, after one month of being there with my mother, uh, I received the news that my older brother Yusuf, 31 years old, was stopped and very violently killed by Israeli soldiers. So, what do you do in this moment? I mean, you are not the same person anymore. It's not, it's not the same conflict. These are not the same enemies. It's not the same life. It's not the same home. How, how can you find a reason 
to wake up in the morning. I mean, Yusuf for me was the best, my best friend. We grow up together in the most hard conditions where our brotherhood has become more than brotherhood even. And my brother was killed, not because he's a criminal. He was not armed, he was not, he didn't participate in any action. You know, even my brother was working in Karen Kemet, the Jewish National Fund, and he got Israeli friends. One soldier has stopped him and shot him 70 centimeters away from his head and killed him. And my brother has been killed because he was a Palestinian. And my brother was killed because there is no peace. My brother was killed because that soldier couldn't know him before. If he could know my brother before, he will never do such a thing. Never. So then what do you do? I think the normal action when this happened to anyone is revenge or thinking about revenge. Because this is, you know, pain is the factory of anger. Suffering is the factory of anger. And revenge is the produce. Then you think about punishment. What could be this huge punishment that could heal your pain? How many Israelis shall I kill to feel better? Or to heal this wound? Or maybe to bring him back to his kids, his two kids. How many Israeli mothers has to cry to realize that my mother don't deserve to cry? How many dead bodies has to be created in Israel for this government to wake up and realize that taking a life of an innocent person will not secure another nation? This aggressive behavior will not really convince the Palestinian about any future of normal relation with Israel. And on the other hand, I couldn't really see revenge as, as a healing. Why? Because my political nonviolence mind that I told you that I experienced in the prison was conflicting with my heart. And I'm a human being. I cannot shoot someone. I was not born for that. I was not born to victimize anyone. And I was not born to be a victim of anyone. So how can I deal with all of that? How can I be able next morning to go to the entrance of my village where the soldiers are putting a gate to close me in, and how can I be able to speak to them to go out to the main street? Because we need sometimes permission. It took us two, three years. We were blocked inside our villages and cities, and we needed a permit 
from the army to drive on the main street, not to go to Tel Aviv, in the West Bank. How can I be able to, to hear Hebrew language anymore or to speak it? When this happened to you, you don't want to see the other side. All of these conditions around you is just pushing you to be more angry and to create more revenge. But that conflict inside me has prevented me to take any action. Then I was stuck. One year after, we received the most weird phone call from an Israeli religious man, religious father, an Israeli bereaved father who told us that he created a group of bereaved families who have lost a member in the conflict and they are willing to come and meet my mother. For me, it was shocking that an Israeli calling to come to my home. They used to come, but they never call. <laughs> it was shocking. To see this respect, this is not a face that I used to see from Israel. For me, it was shocking when, I, when my mother agrees and she, she received them. It was shocking to me to see an Israeli crying for the first time in my life. It took Israel 31 years of my life to show me an Israeli crying. I couldn't even imagine that Jewish people have tears or they have feelings. And that event has changed my life. The Israeli tanks, the Israeli Air Force, the Israeli army couldn't succeed to prevent me from attack. But meeting the Israeli humanity, and that was the responsible way for these, this group to prove their Israeli identity by respecting me. And this is what, 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 what I have re received in my mind and what I'm convinced today that if Israel wants to exist normally, the only way for Israel to exist normally is to respect the Palestinian. And if the Palestinian want to achieve freedom, independent and exist normally, is to secure Israel. Not to create a threat among the Jewish nation. And that event, so since 2002, my life has changed. I tour the whole world, I create events. I'm working now uh, in three things. One thing is roots, the Palestinian-Israeli local initiatives in the West Bank for non-violence and transformation and understanding. And because I decide to speak to settlers. Why? I know it's not an easy issue to do. When I decide to go to Gush Etzion area between Hebron and Bethlehem to a piece of land, a tiny piece of land of my family, to create a Palestinian nonviolent center, I wanted to challenge the occupation and to prove that even though the hard conditions, 
even though that the army prevent us from having normal resources, resources like water, electricity, building, I wanted to create that center over there and to have a secure place for both sides to come and talk. And when I receive a group of settlers, students of Rabbi Menachem Fruman, a peace activist who has contact even Ahmed Yassin, the spiritual founder of Hamas, where he visited Gaza, and he received well, very well by Hamas. A, a student of him came to my, to my land. It was shocking to me. Because settlers for me always are people who attack and take land and kill and shoot. This is the view of settlers in my mind. But having settlers that they talk about any normal future for the two nations, this doesn't exist. It's abnormal even. Then I said to myself, all of these years, I'm acting with these nice left-wing Tel Avivis in these nice left-wing peace cafes where, where these nice Israelis always tell me, Ali, we are good, we don't speak to settlers. What does that mean? Shall I speak to settlers? I mean, I live with these people. And my life has become terrible. My conditions has become terrible, not because of the nice left-wing Tel Avivis. It's because of the right extremist settlers. So, so then I decide, where, where, is, where is the heart of the problem has to be the heart of the solution. And the peace movement has to be courageous enough to speak to settlers and to engage settlers even. Because you don't make peace between friends. You make peace between enemies. I don't want to convince the convinced. The convinced are nice. But you know, one of our biggest mistake in this peace movement, we, we like to feel good with ourselves, and that's it. Dialogue has become a goal, not a tool. Dialogue will not help the Palestinian. Peace for the Palestinian is changing life conditions, not changing mindset, not changing mind culture. You can give a speech in Tel Aviv where people will clap and consider you as a hero about peace. But giving a peaceful speech in Jenin refugee camp will not help. And that's why we don't have peace. Because peace still, still a place where, where peace activists go to these nice peace conferences in five-star hotels, five-star peace. Yes, five-star peace, where the rest of the nation is suffering every day. Because the, the best activists, the best politicians, the peaceful politicians, they become activists for peace just after they retired. And Israeli generals from the army. When they retire, they become Mandela's. And that's why there is no peace. And there is no peace because these many peace companies for peace has become just companies for peace. Not organizations to change life conditions of people to work on the ground. That's why we don't have peace.
It's not because of the extremists. I think the majority of both sides, I promise you, the majority of both sides want to live in peace. But this majority is controlled by the minority, which is the extremist and the right-wing people who create just violence and harm others. So the other thing, I mean, Ruth, we will tell you more with more details. The other things that I do, I decide that the Palestinian nation has to create a new identity today. The Palestinian nation has to build a Palestinian national nonviolence movement to rise. To rise, first of all, the Palestinian has to identify with nonviolence, not as a tactic, not as a strategy even. It's as an identity. We have to prove that. Because the minute that we rise nonviolently, the real revolution will be in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. This is what we have to do. And there is so much interior issues that we have to fix as a Palestinian and stop using the occupation as an excuse. There is a duty, there is a responsibility for ourselves to take. And this is what now we are building, different local leaders from different areas in the West Bank coming together to create this uh, uh, non-violence movement where we call it change, taghir in Arabic, shinui in Hebrew. This is what we call it. And hopefully we will succeed to come together and create a vision with a clear strategy to our freedom and to make peace with our neighbors. Third, I'm writing a book. And this book called Painful Hope. Because to have hope over there is such a painful issue. And I believe that this book is going to upset so many peacemakers. <laughs> and I hope they will not kill me because of that. But, but I believe that the first condition in any reconciliation process is to say the truth. We have to say the truth. Even the truth is painful, we have to say it. Even sometimes if it's against us, we have to say the truth if we want a real peace, not a fiction. So thank you very much. What we're gonna do now, we're gonna take five, seven minutes to tell you exactly what we're doing so you can get a real bird's eye view of the situation that we're trying to change. And then we'll have questions and answers. So, I want you to understand something. Jude and Samaria, the West Bank, where Palestinians and settlers live, in close proximity, we have no contact with each other. We live in separate towns and villages and cities right next to each other, but separate. We have different transportation systems. We don't travel together. We have different municipalities. Those people who pick up my garbage don't pick up their garbage. We have different school systems. We have different religions. We have different commercial systems. We have different banks. We have different stores. We have different everything. We have different schools. 
We have different after-school activities. There's no contact, not between children, not between adults. Different media, different newspapers, different television stations, different radio. The news I read is not the news that my Palestinian neighbors read. We live in two different worlds. We live under different legal systems. I live, or live under Israeli law, and five yards away, there are Palestinians living under military occupation. So we're so near each other, living in such proximity, in two different worlds without any contact. And that means, of necessity, there's going to be ignorance of the other, which means there's going to be resentment of the other, there's going to be suspicion and stereotypes and prejudice, and there's going to be hate. And acts of violence that occur on either side are blown up until people on both sides think that the other side, all they know is violence. That's what Palestinians think of Israelis, soldiers and settlers, and that's what soldiers and settlers think of Palestinians. We know nothing of the other. Even though statistically there's much more of a chance of being killed in a car accident in Judah and Samaria than a terrorist attack, we're not afraid of car accidents. We're deathly afraid of terrorist attacks. And we believe that the key to peace is not at this point in diplomacy. It's not in peace negotiations because the people on both sides are not ready for peace. Not ready for peace because we don't see the humanity on the other side. There's no belief in the possibility of peace because we don't know who the other is. And in response to this terrible, terrible situation that until a year and a half ago I didn't see, in response to this terrible situation, on this piece of land owned by the Abu Awad family, two very important movements are being created. One of them Ali described the Palestinian nonviolent movement, which Ali is working with hundreds of local Palestinian leaders to create a new Palestinian identity as he talked. And the second movement being created on this piece of land, this piece of land that has equal access for Palestinians and Israelis is roots. In Hebrew, Shoashim, in Arabic, Judor, the local Palestinian-Israeli initiative for understanding nonviolence and transformation. And in one word, what we're about is meeting the other. That was three words. Meetings. When you meet the other in an environment that's not threatening and you just listen, and then you talk and the other listens, minds are changed and hearts are changed. And if you want proof of that, the proof is standing in front of you. And I've seen in the past year, tens and hundreds, perhaps thousands, I'm not sure, of hearts changed. And it has an effect. It has a deep effect. And when there's another 10,000, another 100,000 Israelis and Palestinians, people on both sides, whose, whose hearts have been changed by real, deep, human contact with the devil, with the other, then those walls of suspicion and misunderstanding and mistrust and stereotype 
those walls begin to, to fall down. And I'm going to ask uh, our friends to give out sheets that we prepared for you. We want to take now another two minutes, I think, to uh, tell you about some of the programs that we're doing. We have, I think, 20 different programs going on that are all based upon educating about the other and meeting the other. I chose three or four programs to put on these sheets, three or four programs of ours to spotlight. And as we're giving out the sheets, I'll just show you what's there. Uh, the first thing listed here is the after-school program. Listen to this. Kids, Israeli and Palestinian, again, no contact with the other, no common reference point, no common language. The only commonality is each side thinks the other is a violent devil. We have a photography workshop. A photography workshop. It's just five Palestinians and five Israelis meeting for five weeks and learning how to use the camera. They're fourth and third graders and some fifth graders. As they learn how to use the camera, they learn about the other. And when that five-week series ends, we begin again and begin again with another group of five kids from this side and five kids from the other side. And those kids are not going to be the same. And when their classmates back in the Israeli school and the Palestinian school, when their classmates talk about the fact that all Palestinians are terrorists or all settlers are bloodthirsty killers, these kids are going to know that that's not true. And they're going to say that. <laughs> they're going to say it to their classmates and they're going to say it to their parents. And we want to continue that. And we want to ask for your support, however you can, to help us continue this photography workshop. And I'm going to tell you about another program we have for kids. It's, it's here on the sheet. A summer camp. Last year, don't you remember, there was a war in the middle of the summer. The war in Gaza. And while that war was going on, and people on both sides were demonizing the other for what the Israelis were doing to Gaza and what the Gazans were doing to Israel with the rockets, while both sides were demonizing the other, we had 20 or 25 kids from each side coming together for a summer camp. Now, I have to admit, the summer camp wasn't eight weeks and it wasn't a sleepaway camp. Our summer camp was only two days. But you know what it's like when you have 20 kids from each side riding on a donkey together or playing soccer together or working with clay together or in a petting zoo together and you see them each holding the snake together, this Palestinian kid and this Israeli kid, those kids weren't the same after that. It was only five hours. And by the way, the parents who were there were looking in their smartphones while the kids were in the petting zoo and reading about the rockets falling. But no one went home. And the next day we went to the beach together. And actually the bus was scheduled to go to the beach in Ashdod. We had to change the course to go north. These Palestinians, really kids in the same bus, were fleeing from the rockets together. By the way, there was a lot of mothers there in the, in the bus and there was one grandfather with his, with his granddaughter. I get emotional when I talk about this because you can't imagine the power of seeing the other and being with the other and singing with the other and eating with the other. Now, I have to admit, when we got to the beach, by and large, the kids stayed with their own. Palestinian kids over here and the Israeli kids over here. But when we had lunch together, we both ate from the same tub of hummus. The kids were talking to each other, and the parents were talking. Not a lot, but again, I can guarantee you that the people who went to the beach together with the people from the other side, they came out of that changed. 
And this coming summer, it's not going to be two days. It's going to be a week. It's going to be a week with the help and support of the thousands of people we're talking to in America on this three-week trip that Ali and I are now in the midst of. And I'll just tell you a little bit more. You have the summer camp. We talked about the photography workshop, the language courses that we're starting, in which Palestinians who don't know Hebrew and Israelis who don't know Arabic sit together in the same classroom. By the way, our classroom is a log cabin. Sit together in the same classroom and learn the other's language together with a professional teacher. It's really, really hard. And it's really, really important. And that's adults and that's kids. When you learn the language of the other, you learn the culture of the other. I want to tell you something. That uh, until a year ago, when I heard Arabic spoken, I heard the language of terrorists spoken. That's the way I processed it. And it was frightening. And today, the Arabic language no longer frightens me. It's the language of my friends. And then there's the local leaders program. That's a, a program that's Israeli leaders. They're not coming to meet the other. They're just coming to talk together about how they can work with the other. What we can do to reach out, whether it's work we're doing with local Israeli doctors to reach out to Palestinian patients and to Palestinian doctors to work together, whether we're meeting with local Israeli mayors to ask them and encourage them what they can do with their counterparts on the other side that they don't even know. Or when we talk to rabbis and encourage them to get involved in our interfaith dialogue with Muslim clergy and Christian clergy on the other side. And especially our work with the local army commanders. When we're developing a program right now that the local army commanders have agreed that when reserve soldiers come to serve in the area, they'll meet Ali first before they start interacting with the Palestinian population. And they'll meet me, they'll meet settlers who have something good to say about the humanity on the other side. That's really, really effective. So we're gonna ask you if you're able to give us some support, to give us your financial support, if you have resources that you can think of that you can help us with, whether it's in social media, whether it's in spreading the word to others, whether it's just going to our website and signing up for our quarterly newsletter to hear what's going on and perhaps get involved in the future. And of course, when the synagogue comes again on another uh, tour of the Holy Land, come again and visit us and be exposed to the work that we're doing. So on the sheet there, you have a website where you can donate with PayPal by a credit card. You have an address that you can send tax-deductible contributions to. And we're very, very appreciative of the support that you can give us. Questions? What do you want to add? So uh, do you want to moderate that? Or? I don't know. You know, it's always very hard for the first person to ask the question. So let's start with the second question. <laughs> Uh, do you want to? Okay, so I saw first a hand in the back there. Yes. I had read that there was a proposal to have a Palestinians on the West Bank were not allowed to use the bus with yeah. Israelis to go into uh, Israeli territory. Uh, what is the status of that proposal? The question was, uh, in Samaria, uh, an uh, army directive was proposed 
that Palestinian workers that enter into Israel in the morning through checkpoints. The proposal was that when they come back in the afternoon home, they'd have to go through the same checkpoints. Presently, they're allowed to come back any way they want. Any way they want means that they take buses. And on those buses, Palestinians and Israelis are sitting in the same bus guard forbid. Uh, the proposal was that the Palestinian workers would have to go through the checkpoints on the way back, which means that they couldn't take the Israeli buses. The Israeli buses don't go through those checkpoints. The question simply was, what's the status of that proposal? I just read in the paper that the proposal's been temporarily shelved. I don't know more than that about it. I do The question was, uh, how would we envision a potential peace? How would the West Bank be divided? So the answer will take three or four minutes, and then Ali will say his own take on it. First of all, what we do in Roots is not about politics. It's not about envisioning how the settlement will look. What we're involved in is preparing the groundwork for any future settlement, the human groundwork, the human reconciliation understanding. So we're not involved in such things, but you asked me my personal opinion, I'll tell you what I think, and what I think does reflect what many of the activists on both sides, Palestinian and Israeli, what many of the activists in our group think. I think we've been coming in the direction I'm about to spread out in front of you simply because of our contact with the other and our growing knowledge of the other. So it goes like this. I have seen in my life a number of times, I think from Hamas, a picture of the whole, what I call the land of Israel, the Israel within the border of 1948 to 1967, and Israel beyond the West Bank, beyond the Green Line, the whole thing, I've seen it with a Palestinian flag over it. And that indicates to me, to, as to many Israelis, that Hamas doesn't recognize Israel, they want to throw us into the sea. And I've also seen the lapel pin of Bnei Akiva, the religious youth movement, which has the exact same geographical area without a boundary in the middle, without the green line, with an Israeli flag over it. What that means is that both sides believe that the whole land from the Mediterranean to the Jordan belongs to them. And I believe that both sides are right. I believe that the whole land really does belong to the Palestinians. And I also believe that the whole land belongs to the Jews. The green line is totally artificial. As I said in my words an hour ago, the area beyond the green line, West Bank, Judah and Samaria, occupied territories, Palestine, that's the biblical heartland. You can't take it away from the Jewish people. On the other hand, Jaffa, Haifa, on the coast, the area considered to be Israel, 
That's Palestinian land. That's where Palestinians have lived for hundreds of years. They've lived in the West Bank and they've also lived on the coast. You can't take it away from them. And then therefore, in my opinion, my personal opinion, any real peace will have to be based on the recognition that the whole land belongs to both peoples. The whole land belongs to both peoples. Splitting it down the green line is unfair to both sides. And splitting it along the green line and giving each side half or one side 70%, the other side 30% is going to be unfair to both peoples. And the people on each side that have historical memory are going to be full of resentment that injustice was done to them. And therefore such a peace will not last. That's my opinion. Okay, so then what do we do if you can't split the land? And as Ali always says, uh, Palestinians might want one big binational state. Israeli Zionists will never accept it. So I just basically said there's no hope of peace. Finished. So what's my answer? There has to be a split of the land down the green line while recognizing that the land on the other side still belongs to the people on the opposite side. The Palestinians get the land that's called the West Bank and the Israelis get the land within the 67 border, but there has to be open borders that each side can freely move to the other side, and that will cement the fundamental recognition that the whole land belongs to both sides. The border is created because each side wants its own state, but the border is not the main thing, the main thing is the recognition that the whole land belongs to me as an Israeli living in Tel Aviv. Judah, Jerusalem, the West Bank, alone Shrut is also mine. As a Palestinian living in Beit Umar in Hebron, Jaffa and Tel Aviv are also mine. So there has to be a split, but there has to be a recognition that the land on the other side belongs to the other side that didn't get it, they could move there freely, and then there has to be a confederation, a confederation that again makes it clear that it's really one big land that belongs to both sides. And there's a whole uh, program that's called Two Peoples in One Land. Uh, the acronym is IPCRI. You can look at it online. That's developing this, uh, this peace plan. And I'll just say one more thing. It sounds like a naive dream it is a naive dream. At this point, any possible peace plan is a naive dream because neither side is yet ready for any peace. We haven't yet recognized the full existence and the full rights and the full legitimacy of the other side. That's the work we're doing in Roots. Uh, Ali has to get a chance before the next questions. Headquarters with the chickens running around, and the Turkish coffee um, out there in the West Bank where they live. So, uh, thank you for coming here to talk to us. But uh, I asked you a question, I'll ask you again, which is for each of you how are you perceived, how is this movement perceived in your own settlements, in your own villages, with your own friends? Um, yeah, how do we receive by, by others in, in our own, own community? Um, well, first of all, I I paid the highest price to say what I'm saying today. But I think the majority of both sides 
are tired of this conflict. The issue is they are not engaged in any solution. They are stuck with anger and fear. And they act, and they still act, just as victims. Not as a survivors, and not as leaders for change. And this is what we are doing also in Roots, to create messengers of change. The other thing is, my enemy is not the people themselves. My enemy is their suffering, their anger, and their fear. So when I'm stuck with someone who disagree with me, they still respect me. I feel people still respect me. But people are hopeless. They have no hope. Especially because of the life daily condition for Palestinians under Israeli occupation. They have no hope at all. Third, there is lack of understanding about what is nonviolence is. Nonviolence is not giving up your right. This is what people think. Nonviolence is not normalizing a relation in abnormal political situation. Because people are afraid, Palestinians, to be, to be you know, guilty about normalization. How can you create a normal relation within abnormal political, I mean, within the occupation? Before the occupation ends, how can you create any normal relation? And I think this conflict, and this occupation will be end just in one way, by creating a normal relation with the people. And we always say, we are not representative, I mean political representatives of two nations. Whatever we will sign between each other will not, I mean, will not force other to accept. I think normalization is a political approach between two independent bodies as legal representatives. We are not legal representatives of, of two nations. We are just two activists with some other around us who are trying to change this madness. And we are growing. Every day we are growing. Why? Because the abnormal is to be violence. The normal is to be non-violence, because this is the humanity. The normal issue to, to, is to be a human being. So when people resist you, they, or, or disagree with you, this dis disagreement doesn't come from a place of disrespect. It comes from a place of, of lack of, of dealing with the daily suffering. That's why I think that people don't reconcile. Not because they are not a human being, or not because they don't want peace. It's because they don't know where to put the anger and how to deal with the fear. So when you come and engage them in such a project, they find a stage for themselves to talk about painful issues. Listen, listening to the Palestinian story is not a, such a rosy issue. It's very painful. It's very, very painful. It's not easy for any Palestinian to hear what is Hanan saying about the roots of the Jewish nation, the ideology, Judaism, West Bank, uh, Judah and Samaria, all of these. This is not easy for any Palestinian. But believe me, I'm not expecting anyone to change his truth. 
But I'm expecting everyone to accept my truth with his truth. And that's why it's your question. No peace agreement will succeed if it ignore the two nations' roots to the both sides, to the both side lands. If I understood correctly, can you reframe the ideology of the others of your side, of Palestinian side, that rejects this kind of dialogue? So, so there are leaders who reject and people who reject peace for their own agenda. How would you characterize what their agenda is? Well, first of all, you have to understand that we are not equal. The values and analyzing of peace and war in each side are different than the other side. By the end of the day, any legitimacy or credibility of our extremists based on fighting the occupier. This is, I mean, this, the occupation is the best support for Hamas, like example. That's what I, what I believe. And Hamas is, is the good support for the occupation. And the majority of the Palestinian nation want to live in peace, having peaceful life. Actually, the majority of the Palestinian nation want to be engaged with Israel because we have benefits from this engagement. You know, we build settlements by our hand. We, as Palestinians. But when it comes to politics, we're against settlements. And we, have been, we feed our kids by building settlements. This is one. The other thing is, I don't believe that there is a place without extremists. There is no 100% peace. Not in one country. Every country has its own terrorist and extremist. The difference is any government, what is the credibility of that government that can fight extremism and bring the majority of the nation to, to agree with, with the peace is political life conditions. I mean, when, when Mahmoud Abbas himself the president of the Palestinian Authority 
needs a permit from the Israeli army to go from Ramallah to Hebron, he will not be respectful anymore. Respected. He's not respected anymore. Because I think his power comes from political support from Israel. And the whole world know today that Palestinian security forces have succeeded to collect all the weapons from the street, at least from the West Bank. But you know, even though that, there is no alternative of violence. We have never created a model, a successful model for peace. We are, I don't want uh, a ceasefire with Israel. I want a solution. Because ceasefire is like continuation for the occupation. Ceasefire for Israelis is a time where extremists getting stronger. I, I want solution because peace for us is not to cease the fire. Peace for us is to start living. We are not alive. We, you know, more than 47% of the Palestinian population are unemployed. Not, not employed. Not employed. Yeah, employed. 47%, can you imagine? Has no food to feed their kids. Shall I give them a lecture about peace? They will follow me. If the stomach are empty, the mind is angry, is full of anger. Peace has values. So what I'm trying to explain is the minute that human being rights will be in harmony of their life, believe me, no one will have a credibility to damage that. We will all together fight for this. But we, we have nothing to lose. And when people have nothing to lose, they want everything. That's my answer. I'm going to take the mic because it's almost two hours. I know that there's a lot of people here who would like to continue the dialogue. And I encourage you, because I know that when Hanan and Ali were arranging their uh, carta to leave, they said, let us stay a little longer, because we know the people like to talk to us. And dialogue is uh, also the one-on-one -on -one dialogue. So with their permission, I invite you to come forward and to shake their hands. And uh, in that regard, I would just want to express my awe of the courage for each of these gentlemen, because in each of their communities, what they're describing is a taboo for many. And more and more because of them, it's becoming a reality to meet, to greet, to hear the other side with respect. So there was a quote that I wanted to share from this morning's newspaper by Tom Friedman. He's writing about how the Muslim world is in chaos. And he writes, Otto Scharmer, an economist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, 
who works with communities trapped in perpetual conflicts, defines the main features of the fundamentalist mindset by its opposites. What is the opposite of an open mind, he asks? You are stuck in one truth. What is the opposite of an open heart? You are stuck in one collective skin. Everything is us versus them, and therefore empathy for the other is impossible. And what is the opposite of an open will? You are enslaved to old intentions that originate in the past and not from the present, and so you cannot open up to any emerging new opportunities. If that zero-sum mindset continues to prevail, you can only reap for the future. We have the opportunity to live with hope because of Hanan and Ali. Thank you to both of you.